Welcome to the Pardes Parsha podcast. My name is Tzvi Hirschfield, and I have the distinct privilege and pleasure of discussing the profound analysis and deep insights into the Parsha from my wonderful colleagues at the Pardes Institute. So glad you could join us. Hello, everyone. Tzvi Hirschfield here, still excited to be with you. And today, as opposed to talking about the Parsha, you may have noticed we have all these holidays coming up. So we thought it would be a wonderful addition to uh, devote some podcasts, as you've already heard, to the holidays. So today, I am privileged to be joined by my friend, neighbor, teacher, colleague, great guy, Rabbi Michael Hatton, who teaches at Pardes, among other things. And we're here to talk about Sukkot. Welcome, Michael. Good morning. Thank you so much, Svi. Welcome to you. Okay. So Sukkot, you always feel Sukkot never gets enough time for prep because we prep a lot for Rosh Hashanah and included that as prep for Yom Kippur. And then suddenly Sukkot is on us five days later, and we often don't get the time to delve in and really think about Sukkot enough. Do you ever have that problem? Uh, Sukkot has so much associated with it, so I would agree. And it kind of just gets lumped in there, right, with all the other Chagim or Chagim of Tishrei. So one thing I'd like to start off with is a sense that I have of this either duality or tension in the very nature of Sukkot. On the one hand, it's a pilgrimage festival, meaning the idea is Sukkot is a time when we get gather as a people in Jerusalem and focus on Jerusalem and the temple and sacrifices and come together as a nation there. And on the other hand, it seems very much this individual celebration where I build my sukkah in my backyard or out in my fields, and it's a time of harvest. And it's very much looking at my own experience in my field, appreciating my harvest. And I'm just sort of wondering, both practically and as a message, how am I supposed to be in two places at the same time? Am I supposed to be at the mikdash all day, at the temple all day? Or am I supposed to be sitting outside my sukkah all day? So listen, I think that's one of the great tensions of Jewish life, which is at the same time we are incredibly communally focused, which means that we come together and we recognize that there's energy in that, there's power in that. And at the same time, we have our relationship with God or our familial unit's relationship with God, and we live that out too. So I would call it a tension, but not a contradiction. In many ways, we're going to be talking about tensions and contradictions in general about Sukkot today. Uh, and maybe I'll just start by focusing on a word that you used and kind of fleshing it out a little bit, and that's duality. You know, we talk about the rigalim. The Torah calls the rigalim, rigalim, obviously, which has to do with regal or, or walking, pilgrimaging, if that's a word. And at the same time, they're called Chagim. And the truth is that the only Chagim are Pesach, Shavuot, and Sukkot. In terms of the word, the technical term Chag Correct. is used. Correct. The word Chag actually has to do with a circle or a circuit. In modern Hebrew, a dial on you know some sort of a dashboard is called a Machog for that reason. Um, it's the same root that's used in Arabic, which is Hajj, for going to Mecca. Right, so the, the nature of a chag is that you're making a pilgrimage to somewhere. And each one of these chagim in the Torah kind of has this very, very important duality associated with it. I'm going to go through it if that's okay. Yes, we have the time uh, plotted out for you. Okay, great. So, you know, we have Pesach, Passover. And Pesach is referred to in the Torah by two different names. One is Chag HaMatzot, the festival of the matzah. And the other is Chag HaAviv. We translate it as spring. In the narrow sense, aviv, which has to do with beginnings, like av, father, aviv is the beginning of the barley harvest. So that's kind of like Pesach, 
okay? Barley harvest on the one hand and matzah on the other. We talk about Shavuot, and Shavuot is a festival of harvest, Chag HaKatsir, wheat harvest, and a festival of the first fruits. And it's also a commemoration of the giving of the Torah. Which, I mean, I think we have to acknowledge that the giving of the Torah part is not made explicit in the biblical text. Right? The biblical text focus on the agricultural element, and I think the sages are the one that probably brought the receiving of the Torah, making it Chag Matan Torotenu, a festival of receiving the Torah. They brought that more to the center. For sure, but it's not implausible. And if you do the math in terms right, of— Right, it still works out yeah. as historically accurate, I'm not, but in terms of the emphasis. Yes, absolutely. And then you have Sukkot, which is a festival of Asif in gathering, which means that you're bringing in the grain from the field that dried over the summertime. You're bringing in the fruits of the trees, the grapes and the pomegranates and the rest of it. And it's also a time that commemorates our exodus from Egypt and sort of traveling in these temporary dwellings as we make our way through the wilderness. So putting that together, really what that yields is there's a fundamental duality in terms of the Chagim, on the one hand, they're agricultural festivals, and on the other hand, they're historical events, or they're commemorations of historical events. Okay, so both things are at play here. In each of these holidays, each of these Chagim, you're both commemorating or trying to learn a lesson or relive a lesson from our past, and you're also trying to experience in a religious, spiritual way, in a godly way, the agricultural season that's either opening or coming to a close. If I were to develop that a little bit more, I'd say the agricultural side of the festival is a function of the season, as you pointed out, which is solar. The historical aspect of the festival is a function of a lunar date, right? It's a specific day that we left the land of Egypt. It's a specific day that we received the Torah without getting into all the you know, discussion exactly what that date was. Sukkot is more of a, a time of leaving the land of Egypt, but it's associated with those events, which is a lunar marking. So we really have agricultural solar versus historical lunar. Would you even deign to push that to the idea that we're also sort of molding the God of nature and the God of history? Into one. Into one. Correct. Into one. And there's sort of the unity theme is an overriding idea that pertains to all the Chagim. If I take it one step further and then kind of like bring it back, we might say that the agricultural practice of the holidays universal in the sense that all people celebrate these things. You Americans, Tzvi, talk about Thanksgiving. Well, by the way, that holiday has fallen a little bit into politically incorrect areas, but go ahead. Yeah. Just tread carefully as a Canadian yes. in terms of what you're about to say. Yeah. We have our version too, but it's not as charged. But the point is it's a harvest festival, right? And every ancient culture and probably most modern cultures celebrate harvest as an event and harvest is about the season. So when we celebrate Sukkot through the lens of agriculture, that's sharing something with everybody else. When we talk about the exodus from Egypt, that's particular to us. That's our history. That's our identity in a very, very cohesive way. So as much as the festivals commemorate universal events, call that the seasons of the year, and the agricultural cycle, they also commemorate particularly Israelite slash Jewish events, which is the historical moment that we commemorate. So we've got these two broad themes, and if I understand you correctly, we have this universal, natural, seasonal God of nature, God of rain, God of sunshine, controlling those things that really apply cross cultures, 
very natural human religious spiritual connection to a God that blesses us with bounty or withholds it if that God is angry with us. And you're saying, though, this is deliberately juxtaposed to the God of history and this God with this special relationship with the Jewish people, a special covenant with the Jewish people. And I guess the the question that's going to come to mind is, why do it that way? Why not keep it neat and clean? Why not have moments where we focus on the God of nature and other moments where we focus on the God of history? Why create the confusion? The poor Jew in the time of the Bible is wondering, as I'm wondering, Where's my emphasis? Am I supposed to be looking at my crops, or am I supposed to be looking to my past wandering in the desert? Where is my focus? You've confused me. I would say it's not about confusion. It's about clarity. It's a perceived confusion in which we look at the world around us and we say, these things are the result of X, and those things are the result of Y. There's a God of history. There's a God of creation. There are perhaps multiple gods within each one of those categories. And the Torah comes along and says, actually, the clarity of the issue is that there's only one God. And that's sort of our fundamental contribution to, you might say, religious discourse is that idea. I sort of, I appreciate the tension there, but I wouldn't call it confusion. I would call it... Trying to resolve a confusion. You're saying that people really had trouble then, and maybe even now, we can talk about that a little bit later, between this God of nature and God of history. And you're saying it's coming along to educate the people. I know you're tempted to see them as different. Perhaps it's easier to find God in the rain and the sunshine in a fertile soil than to find God in the historical events of the Jewish people. But it's telling us, no, they're one and the same. This is also, by the way, how we think about Shabbat. When we make Kiddush on Shabbat, we call it on the one hand, Zecher Lamaseh Bereshid, which is God is the creator, and the six days of creation, and the seventh day, which is Shabbat. And it's also the God who took us out of the land of Egypt, Zecher Liyitziat Mitzvah. And it's exactly the same idea. The God of creation, obviously, is universal. The God of Exodus is particular. And there are two different aspects of our understanding, our relationship of God. At the end of the day, God is one. And perhaps sort of the perceived contradiction is only in our human minds. But the Torah is really inviting us to connect things and to realize that they're actually part of a much bigger picture. You know, I might even take a jump to say that same thing with our own identities. You know, people get stuck on, am I a human being or am I a Jew? And which one comes first? And you could make the case from here. It's not about coming first. You're both. You're both a human being along with all the other human beings as part of the natural God-created world. But you're also a Jew with your own unique history and unique relationship with God. And they don't cancel each other out, but they are in some way brought together. They're brought together and they actually complement each other in the sense that each one offers us a dimension of our humanity, which we perhaps otherwise wouldn't have. You know, so we often think, especially as, you know, most of our listeners and we, as, you know, Western liberal Jews, we have a certain way of looking at the world, which is part of a much larger, broader context. And at the same time, we have a very particular identity, which is Jewish. And that doesn't have to be a contradiction. It is a tension, but it's not a contradiction. I guess the tension emerges when we try to prioritize or we feel them pulling us in different directions as opposed to what you're talking about is creating some type of unity there. And I imagine the challenge is when we feel that pull. Like I mentioned before, should I be at the temple or should I be in my backyard? But what you're saying is experiencing that tension and finding unity through it is really what the educational message or the goal is. 
So tell us about Sukkot. How does this play out in the specific Chag? So in the Torah itself, Sukkot is described two different ways. Like I said, one way it's called Chag HaAsif, which is the festival of the ingathering. In that connection, the ancient rabbis taught us that the Sukkah is constructed out of particular materials. It's based on a verse in Sefer Devarim in Deuteronomy chapter 15, Chag HaSukkot HaSelechashivat Yamim, celebrate Sukkot for seven days, when you gather in from your threshing floor and from your wine press, Migor Nacha Umiikvecha. And the Chachamim learned from that that the schach that covers the Sukkah can only be prepared from what's called the refuse, the psolet of the Goran and the Yekev, the refuse of the threshing floor and the wine press. I'll translate that into English. What that means is organic material that's been detached from the soil. Got it. So the schach, the roof of the sukkah. Yes. Which I guess you're saying schach, sukkah, that's sort of the ikar, it's, that's it's the, the main thing. the same root, actually, grammatically. Right. Really, the sukkah, the main idea there is the roof, and the roof, you're saying, has to be constructed out of, presumably, something that grew from the ground and is now detached from the ground and hasn't been manufactured or processed into anything else. Correct. Now, that's a fancy way of saying that it's basically analogous to the products of the harvest because that's exactly what we're gathering in from the fields. So the schach of the sukkah is speaking the language of the harvest. That's really what's happening. At the same time, in Sefer Vayikra, in Leviticus 23, the Torah tells us that we celebrate sukkot, ki basukot hoshavdi et b'nei Israel. I caused the people of Israel to dwell in sukkot when I took them out of the land of Egypt. We sort of imagine the sukkah as being, you know, what we would call today camping. Right, so you have a temporary structure, it's easy to transport, it's easy to set up, it's easy to take apart, and you move from place to place as you make your way. So in theory, if I just had the book of Vayikra, I might think I just had to live in a tent. It would work. Right, a tent would work, and along comes Javari and says, no, 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 the sukkah also, at least, has to connect you to the harvest, therefore the roof of the sukkah is much more specific, it can't just be a tent. Correct. So ultimately, when sort of the halachic sukkah emerges, it's going to be speaking to both of these things. It's going to be something that speaks to the event of the harvest and what that actually looks like or feels like as we carry out that work, and also a very conscious memory of what it was to leave the land of Egypt, to be vulnerable, to be in a state of dynamic movement, and to be under God's protective gaze. Right. What's so striking is the experience of the desert is in such contrast to the experience of harvest, right? In the desert, we don't own land. We're living on the mana on the man. There's nothing to harvest, nothing agricultural there at all. That's what makes it a desert. As you said, we're living completely hand-to-mouth from God's bounty. And it's interesting what a contrast that is to a harvest festival where you are literally, as you said, surrounding yourself with the fruits of the soil of the land and your connection to a specific piece of land. It's interesting how, of all things to juxtapose, right, why would I want to try to connect to my desert experience precisely at the moment where I'm deepening my connection to my experience of harvest. So you hit the nail on the head. Oh, finally, I got something right, folks. Okay. If you've been listening for a number of weeks, <laughs> I told you it would happen, and it happened. This is the perfect segue for the commentary of the Rashbam. So I want to introduce the Rashbam a little bit. Um, the Rashbam lives in the 12th century, and he is, of course, perhaps better known as Rashi's grandson or one of his grandchildren, and the Rashbam is associated with an emerging school called the School of the Tosfot. Those of you that have studied Talmud know that there are often contradictions in the Talmudic discussion. 
a particular sage or a Mishnah will raise an issue and a contradiction will be raised from a different place and there'll be an attempt to resolve it. And you might say that the work of the Tosfot is sort of to take that idea and to make it even grander, right? You think there's a contradiction between this source and that source, this tractate and that tractate. There's no contradictions, actually, because what we try to do, according to the Tosfot, is to harmonize the text. You know, as moderns, we love contradiction. We love conflict. We love tension. We sort of, I'm not going to say we wallow in it, but we sort of look at the world through that lens. And I think for the Tosfot, and maybe for the Rishonim, for the early explicators of the biblical text as well, they didn't look at it that way. For them, it was about an opportunity for harmonizing, for unifying. I might even say, like, if I were to push this theologically, because fundamentally that was where they were coming from. If there's one God and there's one Torah, that means on some level it has to come together. Even though they did not eradicate the layer of tension. Correct. They acknowledge the tension, but then seek a structure of unification on top of it. In fact, you might say that's what makes the unification so powerful, because it's not simply one-dimensional on the fundamental level. There are seeming contradictions. We're going to harmonize those and unify them and create something incredibly powerful as a result. Without denying them. Beautiful. Correct. I'm going to go out on a limb here, but I would say if you really want to understand what these sort of medievals did in terms of their commentary, whether it's on the Torah or whether it's on the Gemara, it's that idea. Okay, what we as moderns did was to deconstruct and to introduce contradiction and to look at things as being a synthesis or perhaps not, whatever the case may be. But they were very much interested in seeing the unity of the thing. Okay, so this is what the Rashbam says. He says, yes. Sukkot is about the exodus from Egypt. That's a historical experience. It's about going through the wilderness. That's an experiential kind of thing. And when we're in that place, we understand that we cannot guarantee our own survival. I mean, living in the desert, Lisa, the Torah describes it, is fundamentally an experience of acknowledging our limits and that we cannot really sustain ourselves. We can only live if God chooses to sustain us. Which is what we call the mana, or the miraculous well, or all the other things that are associated with the midbar, with and this our, our clothes not wearing out, Correct. and all the things that God describes. Living this miraculous existence where God's intervention in our care is manifest all the time. Which is another way of saying, and again, there's sort of a rabbinic layer, obviously, and a Torahitic layer, but the basic idea is that in this environment called the Midbar, it is not possible to survive without divine intervention and protection. That's the idea. Okay, we come to the land, the Rashbam says, and all of a sudden, we have a different way of living. We're planting, we are harvesting, we are gathering in our crops, and we sort of come to a conclusion that actually it's possible to guarantee our own survival through our hard work. We are at least as appearances go, pretty self-sufficient. Correct. At least that's the appearance. So the Rashbam says, at precisely that moment of the harvest, when we feel the most self-assured, the Torah says, leave your home, go into the sukkah, which is a temporary dwelling, you'll feel the cold, you'll feel the heat, you'll feel the rain, and you'll understand that in fact, all that hard work that you put in was essential but insufficient to actually survive. So precisely at the moment when my storehouse is filled with grain 
and I've got all those barrels of wine, and I'm feeling on top of the world, and I'm feeling like I'm in great shape, nothing can harm me, look at this amazing life I have built. The Torah tells me, just don't forget your experience in the desert, where you understood in a very deep way that God is the ultimate guarantor of your existence, and remember that now. Don't be misled by this illusion of self-sufficiency. Everything you're experiencing is actually a blessing. It's not your own hard labor that brought this to you. It's a blessing from God that gave this to you. Well, it's both, right? In other words, it is your hard labor, but that wasn't enough because a lot of things can go wrong. Right. Well, that's the the interesting part. The interesting part is that the Torah's ideal is not that we should live in the desert forever and have man and miraculous wells. The ideal is to live in a good land and work hard to enjoy all the benefits of that land but still maintain a posture of gratitude towards God as blessing you and giving you all this all at the same time. Which is another way of saying, again, if we're talking about the agricultural aspect and the historical aspect, the Rashbam is actually saying it's part of the same fundamental idea. That's the harmony. In a way, it's a harmony that is made necessary by the bifurcation of our experience, that we experience the desert one way and God in the desert one way, and we experience the harvest another way. And the unity is that in both moments, we have to remember the ideal. The ideal is not the desert. The ideal is to live in a good land. But at the same time, the ideal is not to feel self-sufficient and powerful and perfectly okay on my own, but is to remember God's taking care of us and the gifts. Wherever we are, we're meant to remember or hold on to connect to the other experience to find this balance. Ah, you struck on the essence of Jewish living. I did it again, everyone. I'm two Um, for two today. Yeah, I want to sort of, you know, just kind of expand this a little bit because it's not just about the sukkah on Sukkot. There's a whole other ritual that we do, which is the ritual of the lulav and the etrog. I just have to tell you, and I'll share this story, even though my mother might listen. My mother grew up in a very reformed background. She had never seen a lulav. And when she came to visit the Schechter school I was in, in Cholomoid Sukkot, and she saw an auditorium filled with young people, with kids, waving plants and holding a lemon in their hand, she thought she was witnessing some cult ceremony, and she almost pulled me right out of that school. It looks weird. I think you're going to acknowledge that Lulav and Etrog, these four species, look strange. It looks strange in the sense that if you're not initiated, then you might imagine that it's some sort of a magical ritual or a rain dance, quote unquote. But that's actually not far off the mark. And I want to explore that a little bit more. The Torah asks us to take these four species, the lulav, the palm frond, the arava, the willow, the hadas, the myrtle, the etrog. The fruit of the goodly tree is how it's often translated, pre-Eitz Hadar, whatever that might be. I'm not going to deal with the identification right now, but that's sort of, you know, where we are in terms of how we do it. And the Torah doesn't actually specify why, but it does mention this joy associated with taking these things. So in the Gemara, these items are associated with water. The Chachamim teach us that they come, we bring these things to plead to God for rainfall. And it's not surprising that each one of these four things has a special connection to water. I'll just briefly go through that. If I'm talking about a palm tree, talk about the desert, talk about Gilligan's Island, whatever version of it you want. If you are walking through a desert and you see a palm tree, that's a very good sign. 
because it means that there's water there. It's an oasis. That's what a palm tree signifies. When the people leave the land of Egypt, they come to a place called Elim. And in Elim were Shivim Tamarim, 70 palm trees, and they had the time of their lives till they had to move on. So a palm tree is always associated with water. The willow thrives on water. You take the water away from the willow, it will dry up in a second, which is what it does on Sukkot as well. The myrtle, the hadas, has this fantastic ability, because the leaves are very waxy, to hold on to the water and the moisture that it has. And of course, the etrog is a citron or a citrus kind of fruit, and that means that it has to be irrigated in order to grow. It doesn't grow in a non-irrigated context. So really, what I'm saying is all four of these things are fundamentally associated with water and with the need for water. And where the water comes from, right? The palm tree is this hidden source of water out in the desert. You have no idea where it's coming from. The willow grows next to a flowing stream, right? Constant source of water out in nature. The citron is a result of human irrigation, and the myrtle seems to thrive pretty well on its own with very little water available to it. But it holds on to that but it water holds on so Whatever well. comes, it holds on to it. Correct. So that the whole idea of water ties directly into the idea of the agricultural aspect of the festival. This is not as obvious outside the land of Israel, but those that live here know that we have something called the rainy season. And agricultural depends on the rainy season. The rainy season begins, believe it or not, right around Sukkot, right? Which is how we say liturgically, we mention that, Mashiv HaRuach Umorit HaGashem. Right, the last Ashmini Yatzeret is when we begin to mention rainfall as part of our prayer because it's the onset of the rainy season. So as Sukkot is celebrated, we're taking these four species. And that's why I said, you know, rain dance is not off the mark in the sense that we're taking these four species as a concrete expression of our hopes and our prayers that God will grant us a successful rainy year because that's what we'll need in order to survive agriculturally. So based on what you're describing, rain is this bridge, right? Going back to the rush bomb, that our need for rain reminds us that we need God, even if we're living in a good land with a nice piece of property and I have all the best agricultural skills at my disposal, I still need the rain and the rain comes from God. Unless you're in Egypt and you have the Nile, right? But the Rambam says, for instance, that you know the counter the counter idea of the four species, but it's part of the same harmony. The Rambam says, the four species are about joy. They're about simcha. What's the joy? We left the wilderness behind. We entered a land that actually was full of plenty or we were able to create plenty there. And leaving that wilderness, which was a landscape of very inhospitable conditions, heat and dryness, and nachash saraf akrav snakes and scorpions and who knows what else, right? We leave all that behind, says the Rambam. We enter the land. We begin the process of creating that agriculture. And that's a source of joy. And that's the four species. So they kind of remember the idea of being in the desert or the wilderness, not being able to actually produce anything agriculturally, we enter the land and all of a sudden we have that capacity and we take these four species to celebrate that. I would just add both to celebrate, but also to acknowledge our need in an anticipatory way towards the future, right? The rainy season is about to begin. So I am celebrating what the rain brought me in my harvest for last year, but at the same time, I can't help but also be looking to appeal to God 
to guarantee future good harvests and more rain that's supposed to come up. Excellent. So that's precisely where the memory of the Exodus comes in, because the memory of the Exodus reminds us of the divine involvement in the process. So basically then, on a harvest level, you could celebrate this time as, oh, I'm really happy. I have all these wonderful things and I want to celebrate. And God was good to me. God was good to the earth and he brought rain and everything was good. And yet this is taking it to another level. This is not just a universal celebration of good harvest, but there's an element here of I as a Jew living in a particular place in a particular land with a particular relationship with God. I am seeing this harvest in connection to that particular relationship, that this is an expression of God's unique relationship with me in the land of Israel. And that therefore becomes the basis of the unity idea. Which is the particular and the universal touch neither eradicates the other. They inform each other. And they come together like those four species all being held together as one. We're unifying, we're pulling things together. Listen, you know, unity is a really important theme in our tradition. I would say it's the starting point. That's what one God actually means. And we sure could use some unity these days. Ah, the Jewish people, then the Midrash that talks about the four species as unifying all different types of Jews is connected here. We're unifying our notion of God, but we also have to unify our community and our people. And you can't leave way. anyone out. That's the idea of the Lulav and the Etrog and the Arava and the Hadas. Nobody can be left out. And those Midrashim speak about the unity of the people of Israel. And you got to figure out how to include everybody. So I just want to, before we close, I just want to come back to another point that you mentioned. It seems that a lot of people out there have an easier time with universal ideas about God, God in nature, God taking care of humanity. We seem to struggle more, or many of us do, when we look at this God of history and we look at our particular history and what the Jewish people have gone through and who the Jewish people are, and maybe even how having a special relationship with God somehow separates us in ways that make us uncomfortable vis-a-vis -vis the rest of humanity. How do you see this as a response to that? I think, as you alluded to earlier, we have multiple identities, and obviously we are human beings and part of the human family. That doesn't take away from the necessity for us to also find our particular identity. In the same way, that's true on an individual level. And of course, we have to be informed by our humanity, but we also have to be informed by what it is and who it is that we are, whether individually or religiously or nationally or whatever it is. But that, of course, is, is challenging. I think it's more challenging for Westerners, to be perfectly honest. I think in many parts of the world, this challenge is less acute. Maybe that's why there's more warfare in more <laughs> other parts of the world. I'm <laughs> not sure. I think that that might be connected, but, right? But, uh, you know, we have to find that way. You know, if we, if we completely surrender our particular identity, then I do not believe there's really much left to make us human. And I would say even beyond that, we learn the lessons of our humanity and our connection to the broader world precisely through our particular experience as a Jewish people. They come hand in hand. We learned about the God of nature by experiencing the God who took us out of Egypt. We learn about appreciating the land of Israel by appreciating the God who brought rain. Like They're all interconnected in very profound ways. And I think you're right. By pulling one out, 
you really run the risk of everything falling, right? I think the analogy would be if you took away familiar relationships, that doesn't increase one's connection to the rest of humanity. Rather, I think that just leaves one feeling isolated and disconnected more than anything else. So perhaps that's our mission at this time. To somehow see Jewish particularism as a critical piece of our development as human beings connected to a broader world. Correct. Okay, everyone. So for those of you looking for a deep message about Sukkot, I think you just heard it. Sukkot is teaching us the secret of how to be both human and Jewish, how to be independent and self-sufficient, at the same time deeply aware of our limits and filled with gratitude for all the things we can't give ourselves, and how we have to find unity, not at the expense of nuance and difference, but almost as a frame around which the nuance and difference can exist, so that unity is really about building connection and finding connection and sort of wholeness as opposed to disappearing to each of us to our own isolated corner. I always love your summaries. Well, thank you. I'm happy. I'm glad you heard that, folks. My summaries are helpful. So, Michael Hatton, I cannot thank you enough. This has been inspiring and challenging and interesting, and I think a wonderful way for us to enter a holiday which seems filled with a lot of activity, but the meaning of those activities is sometimes not always fully present. I think you've given us a fantastic lens to build that meaning. So thank you very, very much. Thank you, Tzvi. And I want to wish all of you a Chag Sameach. And of course, urge you to check out Pardes's website to look for Pardes-related learning, both online and in your community. And consider joining us here in Israel to learn our Beit Midrash. And on that note, have a Chag Sameach, a wonderful Sukkot, and look forward to you learning with us in the future. Thank you for tuning in to the Pardes Parsha podcast, recorded here at Nomi Studios in Jerusalem. We hope you enjoyed this week's episode and gained some new insights and perspectives on the Torah portion. Don't forget to subscribe to our podcast on your favorite streaming platform and leave us a five-star review if you enjoyed the episode. Your feedback helps us reach more people with these important conversations. Thanks again for listening, and we look forward to exploring the Torah with you again next week on the Pardes Parsha podcast. Shabbat Shalom.